Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. The Intercooler podcast is sponsored by JBR Capital, one of the UK's leading car finance specialists. Now, we only partner with like-minded organisations who really understand what it means to be a car enthusiast. And JBR Capital is a perfect fit for us. It's run by people who really love cars. And importantly, vehicle finance is all JBR Capital does. That alone is what the company exists to do. So whether you're looking to fund a classic sports car, supercar or hypercar, see what JBR Capital can do for you. And it's not just about very high-end, expensive unobtainium. In fact, the minimum borrowing is £25,000 and the average £80,000. Head to JBR Capital on social media or jbrcapital.com online and tell them the intercooler sent you. Right, let's get on with this week's podcast. Welcome to the Intercooler Podcast. Hello, everybody. This is episode 98. I'm Dan Prosser with Andrew Frankel again. And this week, Andrew, we're talking about tuning and modifying. Yeah. Um, although I should, I should stress, we're not talking about body kits and big wheels and silly exhausts because I wouldn't know where to begin, frankly. We're talking about really good quality tuning by the best tuning companies around. Yeah, I might do a little bit of big wheels and silly exhaust, particularly how much better cars get when you remove them. <laughs> oh, fair <laughs> yes, enough. Yes, um, but yes, yeah, we're certainly not going to be advocating um, that as something that people ought to go and do to their cars. No, so we'll be talking about some of our favourite tuned cars. Um, there might be some stories of it all going wrong. You've owned a couple of modified cars in the yes. past. Yeah. You've had good and bad experiences. Correct. Um, and we're also going to talk about why it is that tuning companies who might employ a handful of people out of a, a lock-up on an industrial estate on the outskirts of town, why they think they're able to improve on the work done by OEMs. Um, but, and actually, there are very good reasons why, but we'll come back to that later on. This is all quite well-timed because yesterday um, I went to see Litchfield to drive uh, his 820-horsepower 992 911 Turbo S 
Um, so it's it's got 170 horsepower more than standard. It's got 700 pounds foot of torque, um, just with engine and gearbox big gearbox maps and a complete bespoke exhaust system. Um, and actually, the the amazing thing about that is that you think about the work you have to do to BMW M5 or a Nissan GTR or something to get 800 horsepower out of them. Particularly GTR, you're into cooling work, you're into totally new breathing systems, you're into maybe new turbos, all sorts of stuff. But yeah, and possibly internal the, the Litcho, stuff as well. It, possibly internals, quite right. And Litchfield, Litcho, we call him, makes the point that these Porsches are so well engineered and built and designed that it's as though they're ready for it, they're prepared for it. So all he needs to do is change the exhaust fiddle with the software and all of a sudden you've got much more than 800 horsepower so i'll just sort of describe what that car's so 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 the idea being and this is the kind of you know particularly with with engine tuning and i think that you know idiots like me when we first started thinking about it didn't understand is that you know you can you know you can turn up turbo boost or you can you know back in the old days fit bigger carburetors and other but it doesn't matter how fast you can chuck it into the engine if you can't also get it out again um, and so that's why you can, you know, you, I'm sure, you know, Litchfield has talked to a computer in the car and got the turbos to put more pressure in, but that's why it needs the new exhaust as well. Because um, otherwise, you know, you, you're not going to get anywhere. So um, what goes in must come out. <laughs> it's true. Yeah, and actually it's a, an expensive exhaust system. It's all bespoke. It's using titanium and inconel and stuff. So, you know, really really top grade materials because that's what it needs in order to to get rid of everything that's going into the engine yeah you're quite right um and it's you know it's a it's an does, it, sound, does it sound good it's a bit more vocal than standard but actually not much okay um and for me that's actually part of the appeal i, d- I don't really want a very noisy exhaust that rumbles away in normal driving and that well not on um, a car like that I mean, if this was a GT3 RS, you might you, you might well want it, but not in a, not on a Turbo S. It's different. It's different. So the whole upgrade costs twelve thousand pounds, and it all adds up to, I think, if I've driven a more accelerate, sort of violently accelerative car on the road, I can't remember it. Um, it even Rimac. Yeah, it feels stronger than that. Wow. That I, so I drove the Concept One, the the original one with. 1,000, maybe 1,200 horsepower. Fast, but this, it feels more violent. And even, you know, something like a Taycan Turbo S. Um, it, for me, to me, it feels more violent than that. And also, it's not just violence. It's the excitement of it all because yeah. you, you get the wheel spin It's because it's four-wheel drive. Well, importantly, because it's four-wheel drive, it does put the power down. Um, actually, Licho says that in first and second, um, they rein it in just a little bit. Um, you still spin all four wheels up in second when you put your foot down and then from third you get everything yeah. which is why you get that amazing sensation from a launch that of the acceleration just not seeming to wane as you go up through the gears it's an extraordinary thing um, I, yeah I really did have my head scrambled by it um, frankly it's far more power and performance than I need on the road yeah well the standard car is though isn't it yeah, it I mean, really is. The standard car, I suppose, is, the point is, it's like a sort of two six, two seven car to sixty, isn't it? I mean, it's still yeah. ridiculously fast. It's insane. Um, but we know there are people who want this kind of power and performance on the road, and you know, all power to them. I'm not one of them. Um, but I, as I say, I, I can't remember a more violently accelerative um, on-road experience. I've, I've only driven 
the Ferrari SF90 on track. And so it's very difficult to, um, to compare the two without driving them in the same environment. But as far as I can tell, this feels more violent. Um, and, you know, there's something exciting about that. But as I said, it's, it's more than I need on the road. The, the hilarious thing is I, I took it out yesterday um, and I, you know, found a quiet bit of road down to second gear, foot down. You feel all four wheels spin up and then the car just rockets at the horizon and it's, it really scrambles your head. And then I got a text from Litro saying, oh, by the way, if you want to feel the full performance, you need PSM Sport. Otherwise, the systems will rein it in. So you knock the <laughs> stability control system into sport, do the same thing again, um, and it's more violent still. Uh, the, the clever thing about what he's done here is that in normal driving, it just feels like any other Turbo S. Um, but even when you're giving it a bit of welly, the map has been done so well that you've, you know, it's still sharp and responsive. You've got energy all the way to the red line, very linear power delivery, very flat torque curve. So it's, it feels OEM, Yeah. it's, it's hypercar fast, maybe more so for supercar money. Is there, is there, other than obviously the outlay, is there a downside that you could see? Um, well, your liberty and your license. Yeah, okay, but that's... You know, that's, those things are in very, yeah, very great jeopardy. Yeah, of course. <laughs> um, and, and what I... What, but what I always worry about these sorts of things is... Um, and it's, it, it applies to every single car that's being tuned, uh, every single new car that's being tuned, is what it does to your warranty and should something else go wrong. I mean, clearly the parts that have been modified are warranted by the person who does the warranty. But what if something else happens? Does that not give the manufacturer a backdoor to saying, oh, yes, but that only happened because somebody else fiddled with it does it i don't know whether it does or does not invalidate um the the oem warranty i suspect it probably would yeah um a good tuning company a reputable one will warranty their own work so if something does go wrong they will look after you and they they make the point that you can blow you know you might even blow a gearbox it doesn't mean it disintegrates to dust it means a couple of the ratios might need to be swapped out or something um, and a, a reputable tuning company will look after you. However, if if that's a genuine concern, just don't do it. You know that's the that's actually the best advice. If you're if you're truly worried about that, don't do it. I, th- I think it's with all these things, isn't it? Just yeah, just go in with your eyes open. Just I mean, I'm, I'm not saying for a moment don't do it. And certainly with with, with people like you know, which Litchfields who have stellar reputations, um, absolutely the best of the best in that field. Um, you know, if you're going to do it with anyone, do it with those guys. Um, but just with you know, with any tuning company, just always just acquaint yourself with. Just look at it from every angle, uh, and just make sure that it's right for you. And I'm sure they'd say the same. But the, you're, you're right to raise it because this warranty conversation it just follows around every single discussion around tuning brand new cars, and it's a, it's a very important point. But you only need to look at the steady stream of brand new showroom fresh cars that go directly from the dealership to a tuning company and there are lots of them to know that there are plenty of people out there who actually aren't concerned about this stuff so you know fair enough um but i I do want to talk about why it is that the really good quality tuning companies are able to improve on the work done by oems as as i said at the top you know they might have a couple of lockups um and a, a small team of people uh, working on an industrial estate, OEMs have 
enormous engineering teams. They have the most experienced engineers, the best facilities. They invest billions into R&D. They have the best test and development drivers. Imagine having access to Walter Roll and all the experience he has and countless others like him. I mean, I, c- I can remember... So I need to mention this now um, because it's the, only number that, it's the only relevant number that's in my head. But before Dieselgate blew up in Volkswagen's face... Um, they were spending more on engineering alone than the GDP of quite a few European countries. <laughs> wow. And yet... Yeah, they, were spending, they weren't spending billions. They were spending tens of billions on R&D and engineering. Um, so those are the sorts of numbers you kind of have to have in your head when you think about um, the level of quality engineering that, for instance... Um, a Porsche will put into building a Turbo S. Mm. <laughs> yeah, quite right. And so one of the first reasons that springs to mind is OEMs have very carefully uh, orchestrated model hierarchies to think about. And not just with within their own um, brand, but you know, think about the VW group. Um, they work very hard to make sure that Skoda and Seat and VW and Audi all sit comfortably within that group. Yeah. Um, tuning companies don't care if a cheaper model suddenly becomes faster than a more expensive one. Take the BMW M2 versus the BMW M4. BMW will protect that hierarchy very carefully. An independent tuning company doesn't care. No. So they can, unre- they can release all the, the sort of the latent potential within the M2 and not worry about what it does to if it annoys M4 customers. Yeah. Um, another point is that showroom cars have to have a broad appeal. And I think about my car here, the A110. If you really want a track-honed one, Alpine doesn't offer that. You know, you can get an A110S, which sort of gets some of the way there. But if you want a proper, almost purpose-built track car out of your Alpine, you're going to have to go to a tuning company, aren't you? The point being, a tuning company can build a car for the individual. Yeah, in a way that a manufacturer could never justify the outlay because the volumes would be too small. Yeah, um, and there, there are so many reasons why, actually. All um, new cars, of course, must be... Go on. Well, I was going to say, to me, one of the chief reasons that um, tuning companies can do it is that manufacturers, um, certainly good manufacturers, um, they leave so much wriggle room. They, you know, they're so conservative with everything, um, because, you know, they don't want or need the litigation. The other thing is, is that, you know, they, you know, let us say, you know, again, to use the example of 911 Turbo S, you know, they have to think about someone who's going to leave their car um, with the engine running in a traffic jam in Dubai when it's 52 degrees outside um, and the cooling system has to be able to cope with that. At the same time, it has to be able to cope with being ragged around a track all day long uh, or it has to be able to cope with the car to be able to cope with you know being left outside in minus 40 degrees um in the frozen wastes of northern canada for a month yeah and it still has to and start then, first time and they have to imagine that an owner might every single time he starts his car in the frozen wastelands of canada start and immediately do a launch control exactly they have to factor in that so sort there of is use case. So much wriggle room, um, you know, and, and particularly with things like I can remember when Bentley, what was it, the Flying Spur? Bentley launched the original Flying Spur. I guess it would have been about fifteen years ago. Um, 
they said its top speed was two was 195 miles an hour um, and i thought wonder if i could just get this big four-door saloon I did this as a story for Autocar. Um, we went down to Nardo with what was a standard car. It wasn't a speed or, or anything like that. Uh, and the idea was that we, we, we kind of hoped it might do 200 with the wind behind it. Um, and the idea was we'd have four people in it, you know, two in the back reading the FT and, you know, and me and a photographer up front. And the only reason it stopped going faster was that it hit its rev limiter in top gear when it was doing 208. <laughs> it, was wow. just, it, just, it just kept on going. And literally, when we couldn't understand what was happening because it just kept on dying on it, you go up 208 and then die. So we started again. We tried, because we wanted to try to do a lap, this is a good case like this, we tried to set the cruise control at 207 to see if we could do that. But there is. Did it just say no? Some, well, some unbelievably sensible person in, um, in, in, in Bentley Engineering had decided that 186 was probably fast enough for a car to be, uh, to be cruise controlled, so they wouldn't, wouldn't let you set, set it. But. Um, yeah, it just gives an idea of just how, because whatever a car manufacturer says a car can do, it has to be able to do it in any conditions that it could conceivably ever find itself in, and probably quite a few that it couldn't. Um, and so with things like gearboxes, I mean, as you know, all um, gearboxes come with torque limits. Um, and if you look at something like, you know, the Aston Martin's range, uh, so they have two gearboxes that they use, one with two versions of the same gearbox, but one has a 750 Nm handling capacity, which they use in the DB11, and in the Vantage, one with 900 Nm, which they use in the DBS. Um, and that is why when they produced, remember the Speedster, uh, and it would probably be the same with the V12 Vantage that's coming along, where you effectively marry the front end mechanically of a DBS to the back end of a Vantage you still have to use the Vantage gearbox, which means you have a lower ha- a torque handling capacity, so the car has less torque, and that brings the power down. And so you, you don't have quite... But there is so much wriggle room engineered into that gearbox. You know, when, you, when it is, they said, oh, it's, you know, the maximum it can take is 750 newton metres. What that probably means is it'll take 900 all day long. Um, but they just won't certify it. And also, you know, a company like ZF who makes these things... You know, they limit one at 750. That means that they can build another one at 900 and sell that as well. So you have a, you know, just like cars do, you know, you have a range of products, don't you? Um, all with a huge amount of headroom, um, which isn't declared because that just provides a cushion. Um, so, yeah. And so if someone like Litchfield, who knows exactly what he's doing, decides to go and sort of nudge that a bit, the chances of that actually turning around and biting you on the arse are pretty remote. I would say. But yeah, so it's another reason tuning companies can go some go to places that OEMs can't. Yeah, and it's because they ultimately have to warranty their cars. Yeah. Um, and so they always leave in a decent margin. And another example of a ge- the gearbox torque limit is, again, Alpine. So officially, the, the Getrag gearbox in the Alpine is rated for 236 pound foot of torque, um, which is why on paper, the A110S has lots more power, but no more torque. Um, actually, in the real world, I don't think that's quite true. Um, however, there are plenty of remapped A110s running around with 300 pound foot of torque. I've driven a few, um, and they've been they've covered thousands and thousands of miles without problem. Um, so, yeah, tuning companies can just toy with these buffers, these margins yeah. that manufacturers have to work. You with. know, they, they they have to they have to assume that there's at least you know for the one idiot in the world who gets in their car when it's stone cold, and then all, all he ever does is drive it around a track. So he's absolutely yeah. using all the torque all the time. Um, 
you know, whatever torque limit you set has to work for him or her. Um, and so you can imagine the, 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 just the amount of headroom that they have to engineer into these things. So, you know, go to the right people. Um, go to people who are, you know, highly regarded in their field. And if they say it'll be all right, then it probably will be. Yeah, or they don't come knocking on our door when... No. Um, no. So <laughs> I think one of the big ones is that every new car is built to a cost. And I think if you, could, if you had some real insight into just how strict that is, you'd be amazed. They, manufacturers really do have to claw back a few quid here and there, any, wherever they, they can. And dampers are a good example here. Um, the margins are so slim that if an OEM can save a few quid per corner fitting a cheaper unbranded damper... They might well do it, even on reasonably expensive sports cars. It means that you can often buy um, components from suppliers, Bilstein, Olins, XTC, that will be higher spec, built to a higher standard, and therefore work better. Um, Another good example is turbos. I've driven a couple of tuned McLarens that have turbo upgrades. A McLaren actually uses a very old, it's a sort of proven old warhorse of a turbo, particularly on previous cars. Um, it's a Mitsubishi unit. They're bulletproof. They're not going to give you any trouble, but they're also not the sharpest, not the most responsive out there. And so you, it's, very, it's very possible and not enormously expensive to fit new turbos um, to, what, to a previous gen McLaren and enormously improve throttle response. And that's the one thing that, sorry, the McLarens have been criticised for is, is that, you know, wonderful cars that they are in so many regards. You know, we have all at times, to varying degrees, um, felt that they're quite peaky in the way they deliver their power and quite, and quite laggy too. Mm. Mm. And gee, they don't have to be. Um, do you know what? I, I was just thinking about this and one of, the, one of the best turbo installations I've ever come across, OEM or modified, was by a one-man band operation in uh, Swindon, RE Performance, Ricky Elder, I think his name is, good lad. Um, but he's, he's just a genius. He's a an engine-building, turbocharging genius. Um, and I drove a first-gen R8 V10 that he'd built with twin turbos. Um, now, you can get stuck into the ethics of turbocharging one of the few normally aspirated cars out there, but um, what you can't deny is that the results were stunning. I'd, I was expecting to, you know, it's a one-man band working out of a tiny lockup in Swindon. I was expecting it to be laggy, boosty, very short, very sort of narrow power band. Um, honestly, I don't think I've driven a better turbo installation than that. It, it's, it's still somehow delivered its power and torque with that sort of rising, naturally aspirated feel. Throttle response, like I couldn't believe, just no hint of lag. Um, Continue to build all the way up to the red line at close to nine. The most amazing thing was that the richness of the soundtrack, it still sounded s- sensational. So, so, um, so, so it was boosting all the way to nine? All the way. Because usually, it just usually when, you know, if you think of something like, <clears throat> you know, when, when a manufacturer goes from normally aspirated turbo, the, the example that springs to mind is when Ferrari went from the 458 to the 488. Um, mm. You lost at least a thousand revs off the top end didn't you you had a, an engine which used to go to nine and then suddenly you got one it still goes to whatever late seven or whatever but it doesn't and but it's all about the mid-range but if, if, if this one would keep on boosting all the way through um and yet still have a solid bottom end that's uh, that's impressive it was extraordinary and i think it's because he 
just really pushed the boat out on the turbo installation. Very, very high-grade parts to a, to a spec that OEMs probably wouldn't countenance because of the sheer cost. Um, but it, it, was, it was really eye-opening. It made me realize exactly what very good independent tuning companies could achieve. Um, so those are, there are very good reasons why some of these organizations, these much smaller outfits, are able to do good work. Um, I think there are times, though, where tuning cars is not a good idea. Um, and do you know what? I've got one very specific example here. Do you remember the VW Golf GTI Club Sport S? Yeah. What, five or six years ago, yeah, the yeah. two-seat one, um, which was sensational. And really, it had, for me, one of the, the, the best things about it was how supple and fluid the suspension was, how it just particularly on a difficult UKB road, how it just seemed to glide over the worst of it. It was so well executed. And I remember um, seeing for sale on Autotrader or something, a brand new Club Sport S with a few hundred miles on it, boasting that it was on KW coilovers. And that just, you know, is on the deck, probably really stiff. And that sort of thing just makes me go, you've just not understood <laughs> what's going on here. Yeah. And the, the point is that, Tuning is only worthwhile when there's something to fix, you know, when there's, there's opportunity to improve something. Um, I think it should, it should always add um, and improve the standard driving experience rather than change it just for the sake of it. But I, I'm interested in your own experiences of well, modified it, cars. Well, I mean, it's, uh, absolutely on that point, what I was going to say is that um, any tuned car is only as good as the person who's doing the tuning. Um, now, the particular example I want to use, and, and, and this is, you know, this is in the sort of, you know, older quasi-classic car world. But you know, there, who knows? There are any number of cars out there because what happens is that, you know, cars get old, uh, and people want to, um, without spending money on a newer, faster version, so they just tune the old one. Um, and when I bought my 205 GTI, I mean, it wasn't crazy. I mean, some people have done insane things to those. Um, but it had um, it had a big fat exhaust on it. And it had uh, big wheels, fat tyres, um, and suspension, which whoever had done it had got it from somewhere. Um, and when I drove the car, I, I almost didn't buy it because... It just wasn't what I, how I remember. I thought, well, actually, you know, give it a chance because it was a good car. Um, and I thought, oh, it's also been a nice little project. I'm going to retro-engineer it. Bit by bit, I'm just going to turn it back. And without exception, every single thing I did to that car, and at the end of it, when I sold it, it was a completely stock standard car, made it better. Um, putting, I mean, And I can remember when I, when I did the suspension, um, I got some original shock absorbers from it, and they were from a company I hadn't even heard of. Um, they weren't clever or anything at all, but you put them on the car, and they just worked. And they weren't expensive, um, and suddenly, um, you know, putting a, a you know decent wheel tire combination, you know, getting the original um, wheels and, and and some, you know, I couldn't get the original MXVs, which were on the would have been the car originally, but I got some Dunlops, which are. Just nice, you know, one eight five sixty tires, and suddenly the things like the feel and the steering that you get back, and the balance of the car, and it just suddenly felt like it—it it, it almost felt like it had been tied down before, and it was trying to escape. And then you just released it, um, and that's a time when you think actually, when you make a car that is that good, um, and people 
who clearly understood what they were trying to achieve so well. Um, unless you're trying to do something very specific, like you know, make a racing car or whatever, tuning something like this, I, I've always regarded as a bit of a folly because it's never going to be better. You're just going to spoil it because there's so little, as you say, there's so little to improve. There's so little that was wrong. There was so little that needed addressing in the first place. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I, I mean, I did. Okay, so another example is I used to have an old Golf GTI. Uh, Mark 1 1800 and I did do a couple of things to that but I thought hard about them so you know I just changed the tires didn't change the tire size I did I put a thing called a Yokohama HFR on it which is like the first track day tire same size as the original tire so I didn't lose any feel or anything uh, and right hand drive golfs um, they had terrible brakes so I put some discs and pads so I put Tarox disc and Italtune pads in it I think um, and there was also a Volkswagen approved Bill Stein strut update so I did that too and that actually was really, really good because the changes didn't change much, um, but they changed things that needed changing. Um, and the big change, which was the suspension, um, had been signed off by Volkswagen. So that was a kind of sensible way of doing it, if you like. Um, but yeah, there are these guys who just think, well, you know, more and bigger is better, more is, you know, we need more boost, we need more rubber, we need stiffer spring. And, you know, how to ruin a car. It's. It, it, it all comes down to who's doing the work, doesn't yeah. it? And, you know, you need to be very confident that whoever's decided that they're going with this tyre, this brake swap, this suspension upgrade, that they really know what they're talking about and that they haven't just done it to have a product on the market um, and they've really thoroughly tested it and benchmarked it. Um, the best do it. You know, we've spoken about a few of them. And it's why I like what David Pook is doing with Life 110. He's applying OEM levels of rigor and thoughtfulness yes. to the aftermarket tuning industry because that's his background. He was a JLR chassis engineer for a long time. Um, so you, you just have to be very confident that the person who's decided what these upgrades are really knows what they're talking about. Um, there are plenty of them out there. Um, you also had a, a 911 RS replica, didn't you, which is basically a modified car yeah um, completely but i think yeah so it falls into this category doesn't it yeah um but you you really improved it didn't you i did yeah well i didn't tighthill did um and again it ah, just, there you go. Yeah, well exactly that's it you go to the right person don't you um so this was an rs replica it was it was it was a it was scruffy it had done a million miles um but obviously when you turn you know it started life as a 911 sc uh, it's actually why I bought it because, um, unlike original um, two sevens, and in fact all Porsches made before about 1976, it had a galvanised chassis, so it didn't rot so much. But anyway, that's neither here nor there. Um, the person who turned that into an RS replica wasn't trying to improve what was already there. He was trying to change the car. It's a very different thing, uh, and he also he had something to aim at, uh, and. He, he didn't do much to it, but what was done was very well done. Um, and Richard Tuthill knew the bloke who did it, uh, and he was highly regarded. Um, but when I got the car, um, you know, the first thing I did was change the steering wheel. Um, Tuthill told me to do that. I couldn't, and we talked about this on a previous podcast, I couldn't believe, in fact, the last podcast, um, the difference that just putting a pop, proper Momo prototypo wheel on there compared to the big squidgy thing I had on there in terms of the way you could feel the front end of the car and just your enjoyment of it. Um, we also, um, one of the things that the chap who did it, he put the, car, he put the car on carbs, he'd taken the injection off and put it on carbs. 
Um, and Tithill said, you, what you need are some little K&N filter packs on that. So he ripped off all the big stuff that was on it. And suddenly, the, it just sounded extraordinary. Um, and, you know, and so I, did, I can't remember what else. To, I, didn't, I don't think I did a, an awful lot to it because there wasn't an awful lot that needed doing. But um, what I did do was I did go and do a twin test with a proper one, with a proper 2.7. Um, and what really pleased me was that actually there were some areas in which my car was preferably a much more mid-range punch because it had a you know a three liter engine it wasn't anything like a sweet at the top end um, but it was at least as quick um, possibly slightly quicker and it really was because it had been done thoughtfully by people who knew what they were doing it really was for a fraction of the price of the real thing just as good um, so yeah I was um, I was very lucky with that there you go that's tuning and modifying. It's amazing that it took us until episode 98 to get to that topic, isn't it? It shows that we've got an awful lot still to discuss on this podcast. We have, we have a big episode coming up in a couple, don't we? We do. We really need to give that some thought. Do you know what? Let's throw that one out there. Anyone listening now, we've got episode 100 coming up. Um, so if, you'd, if you've got a brilliant idea, something you think we should talk about, or if you think we should get someone on, maybe get RS Driver back on, let us know. Just get in touch. Um, via Instagram or Twitter or wherever you find us. Um, yeah, let us know. Um, that's not quite the end of the episode, though, because I last week I interviewed Darren Cox, um, who was Nissan's head of motorsport for a long time. He's the guy responsible for the GT Academy, for the Delta Wing, um, and for the GTR LM Nismo, which is that bizarre front-engine, front-wheel drive LMP1 car. Um, and I've, I was speaking to him for a story for uh, the Intercooler app, which is live now. Um, basically, I, I think he's motorsport's great lateral thinker. You know, look at all those three ideas. Who else has come up with such off-the-wall stuff? Um, so the story is up there now. But um, there's also a TI Super podcast, which is our entire conversation. It's the best part of an hour. Um, if you're an app subscriber, you can go and listen to, to that now as well. But I wanted to drop in a few minutes here, um, just as a, a bit of a teaser, I suppose. So I'll play that now. Yeah, I mean, again, it was, and this one was, uh, I think Carlos Tavares had left by now. So this was this was Andy Palmer, um, you know, pushing this one through. And he was convinced again by Ben Bowlby because of the success, and it is all about the momentum, right? You can see where this is going. Because of the success of... Um, Delta Wing that Ben had designed, Ben and myself convinced Andy that we could look at the rules as they were written at Le Mans and ba- literally turn them back to front. And and the theory behind it is, and, and again, unfortunately, um, my my um, successor at, at Nissan decided to not continue with the project. And even worse than that, they decided that they scrapped, literally scrapped the cars. So oh. I think there might be one and maybe someone screwed another one away somewhere else. I think there's one currently in the Le Mans Museum, and I'm not sure if that's a real car or a show car. Um, but it, you know, the, the, the basis of it is, if you look at the car, and there, there's some great shots of it, and there's got to be, we've got to make a book of it, right? Because people keep mm-hmm. still asking. I don't think all the stories came out. If you look at the car, it's basically a single-seater with these massive air intakes at the mm-hmm. front, that then go round, they are literally tunnels. So tunnels go through the car, around the outside of the cockpit, around the outside of the safety cell, and then obviously there's no engine in the back. So then they go, and they basically then go under the car. So if you're talking about now Formula One cars, you know, we're in the middle of that process of uh, ground effects. That's what that car was doing. That car was sucking air from the front of the car, 
obviously getting around this very narrow uh, V um, uh, uh, engine and then taking the air around the back and then going on to the, to the rear diffuser. And, you know, the, again, the idea of that, obviously, you know, the, the air was moving very quickly through the car um, and it was exceedingly slippery. If you look at the Audi that came out maybe the next year or the year after, it, you, if, again, if you squint, the car has got, you know, these slab sides and there is a lot more, it's a lot more um, anglier than, than the, 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 uh, the previous ones. And that's what we, we were doing. It, it was genius. Even without the hybrid system, the car was still the quickest thing down the, the straights at the moment. Now, yeah. if we'd have gone to, you know, pick a track, Silverstone even, we, you know, we weren't going to be that competitive. But who cares? 80% of the value you get from doing a what's now called the WEC Championship is what you do at Le Mans. And Le Mans is effectively some massive long straights with a bit, you know, some some fiddly bits. So if you can get down the straights a lot quicker than everybody else, and I mean by a magnitude, you've got an advantage there. How, how much? How much faster? And end of end of end of part of the Molson going into a chicane, are you ten, twenty clicks faster than anyone else? I, I think it was more than that. Wow. Uh, and I, I can't. I honestly can't remember. So someone might might be able to correct me, but. It, it was we were the fastest and by by a long stretch and of course we weren't getting off the corners so we would you know we were mm. catching back as we went down the straight mm. because we weren't getting off the corners quick enough because a we didn't have the hybrid system b we were carrying around the weight of the hybrid system because the acl to- told us to you know, we, we should talk about politics again killing projects um and and c we also had the wrong michelin tires not for anyone's fault we get to change the spec of the wheels because the hybrid wasn't working to have to Breaks, so we then had these old Michelins that had been in a you know two years old, and you know they weren't getting off the corners, and so, so even with no hybrid and all those problems, the thing was still you know fastest at the end of the straight. Now imagine if we'd have carried that speed out of the corners and all the way down the straight. Mm. I mean, you know, you, you find the lap time, and and the book, this book, I'm not going to write. Um, I, I was thinking about it earlier when you you asked me to come and talk about this. Was um, it's going to be called the lost lost twenty five seconds. <laughs> We, so we were at this Bowling Green test track, which Corvette built to mimic Le Mans. So mm. it, obviously it's not as big as Le Mans, nowhere is, but it's got big, long straight. You know, there's the uh, fake Porsche curves. There's the, you know, the um, what used to be the PlayStation chicane, exactly the same, you know, all the same angles, all the same apexes, you know, every, everything to mimic going to Le Mans, but in a, in a very uh, much shorter track. So we were testing there on that basis. I mean, again, you want, we, you know, if you want to talk about effort, because this is just a marketing. Okay. All right. We had three cars, nine yeah. drivers. We were out in America. You know, I, I'm, I'm flying between Japan, London, and, and um, uh, Indianapolis where we were based. I think at one point we had, you know, 180 people working on it. This was not a marketing. Yeah. Let's put that, let's put that to bed right now. This was an effort to win Le Mans. It wasn't, Let's just go and make a bit of noise with something weird. No, absolutely. Delta Wing, yes, that was doing something weird. And, you know, we weren't going to win them on because we weren't going to be classified. And that worked. But this was not a, let's go and do another one of those with something that looks a little bit like a GTR. No, no, no. This was three races. Ben Bowlby, if you know his background, he's a racer at heart. Myself, I'm a racer. You know, we boil it all down. Yeah, we can do marketing operations, you know, ideas, whatever. But I love racing. Uh, and Andy Palmer. And we wanted to win Le Mans in a completely unconventional way. And the only way you're going to take on Porsche and Audi and to a certain extent Toyota, who had spent, I mean, they were spending allegedly 300 million euros a year and they've been doing it forever in, in Audi's case. 
So you've got that compounding effect of all the knowledge they've got and all the you know, supplier relationships with Michelin and, you know, the, the data they've got and the relationship with the ACO so they can change things, you know, um, as, as, they, uh, as they will. Um, there's no way you're going to go and try and out Audi Audi at Le Mans. So you've no. got to go and try and do it differently. So 100%, that was an effort to try and win Le Mans. Not that year. And, you know, everyone says, well, you should have just left it a year. I can tell you, if I'd have left it a year, the project would have been killed. We would That car would never have gone on track. So I had to gamble. I, yeah, I had to have a go at seeing if we could get it. So anyway, we, we you know, obviously, even back then, there's a lot of data around simulation. So Ben Addy's simulation business, uh, it's an associated simulation business. Nismo in Japan had a, um, a separate um, business that was associated with them, simulation. All the numbers fed in, they all spat out, and the lap time was within seven tenths, right? Which is nothing around Le Mans. That's a rounding, right? So, and, and, and again, someone might be able to correct me, but I'm pretty sure, even without the hybrid and with the weight of the hybrid, and I keep talking about that because the ACO could have given us a break. There was no way we were going to win Le Mans that year. Mm. And we were carrying around, and again, you know, my therapist has, you know, wiped my brain of what the number is, but I think 60 kilos of, of we were carrying 60 kilos of ballast. That's a lot. Because, because we didn't have the, the hybrid system. So we, we double whammy. We didn't have the hybrid system and we carried 60 kilos of, of ballast pretending we had it. They could have given us a break, right? I mean, what's that going to be? You know, a couple of seconds around there, no, maybe more. But, you know, we were nowhere near. They could have given us that back, but they didn't. They made us put the weight in the car. So anyway, we're, we're at Bowling Green. We've got these two pieces of data. I think it was a 319, which was, I mean, everyone's going, that's wrong. They can't be right. That's wrong. So what I did, because I like to see things with my own eyes, and as much as I love data and you know gaming and driving loop simulators and everything else, I understand all that, and you know I've got a, a good working knowledge of it. I wanted to see with my own eyes what the lap time was. So I flew, again, you know, we didn't have much budget, but we were spending it in the right way. I flew the previous year's LMP2 winning car uh, with exactly the uh, aero. The, the car had on it at Le Mans, exactly the tyres that it had, and exactly the same driver. I think it was uh, Harry. Signal. And we... No, Harry, Harry drove it, but he, that's right, he didn't drive the car at Le Mans. It was, he'd won Le Mans, and this was a car that had won Le Mans the previous year or whatever. So we drove the car around, and you know I had a stopwatch on that car, we timed that car, and then you extrapolate that our car around that shorter track was... I can't remember, six seconds quicker. The LMP1 car was six seconds a lap quicker than the LMP2 car. With my small brain you know, <laughs> and a calculator, I can say, okay, well, if it's six seconds quicker than the LMP2 car around there, it's going to be, whatever the number was, 25 seconds quicker than an LMP2 car around the Mon, um, and probably a bit more because the straights are longer. So, you know, but, you know, man mass, back of fag packet, this car's going to do a mid-20s. I, I'm ex- I can accept us doing a mid-20s in year one. You know, when the Audis are doing, you know, high teens or, or, or low 20s. I'm well happy with that. Yeah. I see it with my own eyes. You know, we'd back to back a car and two different sets of simulators. We're also a bit faster because the straights are longer. We send the car, right? So I think we're going to do a, say, you know, 323. I don't think we got faster than the 30, maybe even a 40. And, and you then start scratching what has happened there. What, mm. where have we lost that time and then you can start going uh you know the curbs were uh, more severe so we have to stay off the curbs there's a couple of things. and it just added up you know and then it you know compounded itself you know so you go off the curbs you're off line so you're not you haven't got to, you know you're in the slippery part of the track and 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 it just unraveled i mean the whole thing unraveled and the aco weren't being very helpful they they made us you know miss a session because 
our um, wing mirrors were in the wrong place, uh, you know, and, 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 and as I say, we then had, we just didn't realize we had the wrong Michelin tires. They were the wrong compound. They were the harder ones. We didn't have any soft compound tires to try and go fast. And just, you know, that was that. So yeah, what, what could have been? And then, and then, you know, my, my story, and I, I, I don't think I've talked, I, you know, my, I have talked about this before, but at the end of Le Mans, you know, I had, I had a couple of days of getting over Le Mans. If anyone's ever been there, you know, working or drinking, it, you need a couple of days at least to get over it. And I wrote, I wrote a 10-point plan. I said, this is what needs happening. This is what needs to happen for us to be competitive next year. We need to start now. And these are the 10 points. And they said, no, we're not doing it. Like, you know, we're going to do something different. And I was like, okay, I resign. Mm-hmm. Ooh, hang, hang on a minute. What, what, do, what do you mean you resign? Yeah, no, and and by the way, this wasn't my full time job, right? Oh, was it at that time? Yes, it was. I was a motorsport director and head of Nismo marketing and sales, so also looking after you know GTR and Z globally. So you know, pretty big job, and this was part of it. I said, no, I'm gone. I'm, I'm resigning. You can't do that. I mean, that's, that's just. That's, I said, you know, I put my neck on the line for this project. Mm. These are. I know how to fix it. These are the ways we're going to fix it. It's not working how we're doing it at the moment. So I'm, I'm leaving. And it, so that was June, obviously. I ended up leaving, you know, for whatever reason, they wanted to keep me, give me a different job, you know, blah, blah, blah. Obviously, I didn't want to, so you go through the contract, you know, uh, discussions or whatever. I ended up resigning the day after Nürburgring GT3 Blancpain series. We won the Pro Cup, um, which to me was a sign-off saying that's probably the best year of motorsport the Nissan's ever had. I think we won CBGT that year. We won, you know, the Blancpain series. We won Bathurst 12-hour. But no one will remember that. They'll remember that the LMP1 mm. car was a failure. So I, the, we won on the Sunday. Monday morning, I said, no, I, I can't take this anymore. Any of these backwards and forwards, I'm gone. And I don't want to stop now. And you know, obviously, by that point, I'd already had LMP1 taken off me. And uh, that, that was the end of that. And I go and set up a couple of businesses. And now I'm talking to you on a <laughs> podcast six, six, six years later. Ah, crikey, it's a hell of a tale. Um, So, yeah, I mean, as you've explained, there were very good reasons to imagine that the GTR LM was going to be competitive with the rest of the LMP1 pack. Um, Presumably, you were doing it with a fraction of the budget of an Audi or a a Toyota. Yeah, I think uh, if I, that that number I said earlier, we were at um, 15% of that. (laughs) Goodness me. Uh, but do you know what? But, but that was enough. It, it, that that was enough money in the way that we were doing it, because we were set up like a race team. We weren't set up like a corporate mm. going racing. And it's two very different things. If you look at, um, the, the, you know, the best example I think of, of that would be saying how Jaguar went to Formula One. Right, that was a corporate entity mm. trying to understand how to go racing in in Formula One. Whereas if you compare that with, I'm trying to think of another brand that does it really well. Let's, um, you know, Mercedes. Right, I mean. You know, yes, of course, Daimler are involved, and of course, Daimler got shareholding in the Mercedes F1 business. But the, but the F1 guys make the F1 decisions, and they're set up like a race team. And you and you can't have a big corporate making decisions about motorsport; it just does not work. So, if you've got a small group of enthusiastic, innovative people, you will do good things. And that is outside of motorsport. That's everything. You know, the new business I've set up what, that that is almost like written above the door. You know, a small group of people completely committed to the cause, doing crazy stuff. And it works. Now, if we were then part of a bigger organization, you know, we, we were part of a big media group, we wouldn't be doing the stuff we're doing. Mm. And, and that, was, that was that moment in time when 
Carlos Tavares, Andy Palmer, myself, other supporters, Paul Wilcox, who's now at Vauxhall in the UK, a great bunch of people, people on the ground that are doing great jobs. You know, Gareth Dunsmore, who's now CMO of, of McLaren um, uh, Automotive, you know, some, some really good people that are still in the business doing amazing things. We had that moment in time when we came together, both from decision-making process and operations process. I, I better ma- mention um, Gabby Whitfield as well, who's ex, ex Land Rover, uh, who's also in there. Loads of agency people, you know, people I've mentioned, um, Ben Bowlby, uh, you know, Bob Neville, who's running the, the, mm. the GT team, guy called Ricardo de Villa, who's we need another podcast just on him. Unfortunately, he passed away during, during COVID. Um, it was that moment in time that a committed group of people decided to do crazy shit and most of it we got away with and, and it worked. And, and if not, it was an amazing ride for amazing people. people we, we had um, the, the year of LMP1, our, our strap line was uh, eat, sleep, race, repeat, mm. which I still think we should use again. But um, yeah, And, the, and the, Cor- the Corvette boys uh, came along. It was painted on the um, inside of the pit wall opposite our, our uh, garage. And overnight, our boys were still working. So the Corvette boys, when they're on their way home to you know, have a few beers and, and some uh, uh, cheese and baguettes, as you do in, in, uh, in France, they crossed out the sleep bit with, uh, with tank tape. And that, mm. was, that was the, the, the picture of the moment Brilliant. because our guys just didn't stop working. And, and everyone says, oh, it's a shit show. It's this, it's that. People that worked on that project will say, what an amazing experience. You see at the end, when the car goes across the line, Every that the car is out of focus. There's a brilliant shot. The car's out of focus, and all you can see is all of the team hanging over the pit wall like we've just won Le Mans. You know, whatever it is, 120 people in red, waving banners, mm. loving this and loving what they've just done. They've been involved in a shit fight, but it was worth fighting for because it was something completely different that people remember in 50 years' time. So uh, yeah, I, you know, I don't, I don't regret a moment. I think what's really interesting is that. He had two big wins with the GT Academy and with Delta Wing. And with all that sort of credibility behind him, he was able to go, along with Ben Bowlby, the designer, he was able to go to the Nissan's board and say, let's build a front-engined LMP1 car. And it's, they produced the oddest Le Mans car of recent times. Um, sadly, I suspect it'll be remembered as a flop because ultimately it was but yeah but it flopped yeah when you yeah, it flopped but when you hopefully when you when you listen to Darren Cox speak and when you read the piece you understand that there were good reasons for yeah, configuring absolutely. the car that way and it actually had lots of potential um so yeah that's all that stuff is on the app now go and check it out but we'll leave that one there um thank you everybody for listening please remember to rate and review the podcast and if you've got brilliant ideas for episode 100 you've got well You've got a week and a half to get them into us, so please do that, um, and we'll talk to you again next week. Look forward to it. Bye.